Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 387 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Cadwell Turnbull. His short fiction appears in magazines such as Lightspeed, Nightmare, and Asimov Science Fiction. And his short story, Loneliness is in Your Blood, appeared in the Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy 2018. And we'll be speaking with him today about his debut novel, The Lesson, about mysterious aliens who occupy the U.S. Virgin Islands. And now here's our interview with Cadwell Turnbull. All right, so we're here with Cadwell Turnbull. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Okay, so how did you first get interested in fantasy and science fiction? Uh, I think I think watching TV as a kid. So um, um, one of my favorite shows growing up was Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And so I watched that almost like every week, staying up late. Um, I also liked uh, the spin-off Angel. Watched a lot of um, space shows. One of my favorites was um, Stargate SG-1. And um, yeah, so a lot of a lot of TV, a lot of film, and then when I was um, in high school, they assigned 1984, which was at um, at the time didn't seem to me like a like a science fiction book. I didn't know what that what that meant, but I knew that I liked it more than the other books that we were reading, and so um, that got me interested in um, reading books of that kind. Um, in college, I read some Ursula Le Guin. So it was kind of like TV first and then um, books. So when you say in college you read Ursula Le Guin, was that, were those books that were assigned for school or you were just reading those on your own? No. Um, a friend of mine recommended The Loth of Heaven and um, gave me her copy of the book. And I read it and I loved it. And then she recommended to me The Dispossessed. And I read that as well. And it was the first time that I read science fiction fantasy for fun and um, enjoyed it. And that, that opened it up for me. I started reading more of the genre on my own. Mm-hmm. I mean, in your novel, you mention or it mentions the Foundation Trilogy, 1984, The Left Hand of Darkness, the Earthsea series, The Dispossessed, Green Mars, and The Silmarillion. That's the uh, books that, you're, that one of your main characters, Derek, likes. Are those some of your favorite books? Not all of them. Some of them, um, Derek is a little bit more well-read than me, and especially for that time. Um, he, um, I didn't read The Cimmerillion until fairly recently, and I'm still working my way through the Foundation Trilogy. But most of the other books are um, books that I have either um, read at some time or found, um, found later on in my life. And so I would say, yes, mostly. So you said you had a friend who recommended Le Guin to you. Have you had friends throughout your life who are interested in science fiction and fantasy? Um, so I grew up in the Virgin Islands, and I didn't really have a lot of friends that were reading science fiction and fantasy. Um, it was something that um, most of the people I knew wasn't talking about. They weren't sharing this kind of work. It was something that I kind of discovered as I left the islands and I went to school and I did things elsewhere. Um, it wasn't, I, I think I found my way through it or to it by um, meeting people along the way that was, um, that grew up on it or that, um, that was interested in it. 
and they um they thought that you know maybe this would be something that I would like to. Mm-hmm. You say in the acknowledgments that you were telling your extended family that you wanted to be a writer. So was that something an interest you developed fairly young, or when I was a kid, I wanted to be a scientist, and I think I wanted to be a scientist because I was interested in how the world worked. I was curious about the world and it only, I only started thinking about becoming a writer after um, maybe middle school when I was um, writing essays at the time. And my teachers expressed to me that I might have a knack for it. Um, It wasn't something that I thought was um, a possibility before then. I didn't know that people could grow up and, and write in that way. You also say in the acknowledgments, I was a strange kid with a lot of ideas. Like, in what way were you a strange kid? I mean, I just, I just used to spend a lot of time thinking, an abnormal amount of time. It seemed to me that other people found me strange because I would sit and stare into space for a really long time. And um, among my family, I had this reputation of being a very spacey kid. <laughs> And so I thought, oh, well, I guess I'm strange. I didn't, I didn't know what about me made me strange, but I like thinking about things. Mm-hmm. And so then you got an MFA and you say also in the acknowledgements, you say Wilton Barnhart convinced me that NC State was where I needed to be. So what was that conversation like? I was, I was in AmeriCorps at the time. I was doing, um, I was a media coordinator at this this after school project and I had applied to the creative writing program and Wilton was on some travel. He was, um, he, he has a, a tendency of like driving to different places cause he likes to drive and he was passing through and he stopped in Pittsburgh and we had a conversation. We sat down, had a lunch and he basically just pitched to me, um, why NC state would be the best choice. I had applied to it and it was one of the places I applied to because um, at the time, me and my wife was, um, we were looking for different places where we could both do our thing. And it didn't have to be the same school, but it had to be in the same area. And so she was looking at Duke and I was looking at NC State. And I also saw that John Kessel was there. And I thought, oh, maybe, maybe this might be, um, the kind of creative writing program that would be friendly to me. And so Wilton pretty much, um, I didn't need a lot of convincing anyway. I was already very interested, but he, he sold the program to me, um, explained to me what it would be like, what I could expect. And, um, also, um, you know, told me that they were excited to have me, which made me feel, you know, pretty good. So I was like, Oh, okay. This seems like something that I could try. So how much fiction had you written as you entered the program? Um, a couple, a couple failed attempts at novels. Um, one urban fiction novel, one, um, I would say, um, fantasy, fantasy dystopian novel. Um, a couple short, short, uh, short stories. Um, not much. Um, I had submitted for the, um, the, um, the MF, the submissions process. Um, a, a longish short story that I had just recently wrote while I was, um, doing the AmeriCorps thing. And, um, it was one of the, I would say it was one of the, the only completed works of long fiction I had at that time. Yeah. And, and so the, 
the the material that became your first novel, The Lesson, um, some of it was published as a, a short fiction first, or at least one of them was. Yes, um, A Third of the Stars of Heaven. Yeah, I published that in Lightspeed. So when did you first write about this this world that eventually became The Lesson? In um, When I was in my MFA. So I was, I think the first semester of my MFA... I decided that I wanted to play around with this idea because I had a dream where aliens were um, integrated into a, a small town and they looked and acted like humans, but occasionally would kill people. And so it seemed like a, a good concept and I was kind of running low already on good concepts. And so I thought, okay, if I could do that idea and set it in the Virgin Islands, maybe this could be something that could work. And so that wasn't, that wasn't a third of the stars of heaven, but it was um, one of the chapters that became the lesson. And you say that you, you thank your MFA instructors for telling me this was a novel, even when I didn't believe it myself. Yeah. At first I didn't. So like when I wrote that first short story, I thought that was going to be it. And then I started writing more um, pieces of it. And it, it slowly, gradually over time became something that I thought had a larger story. And, um, I didn't know what that was. I was, I was struggling to figure out what to call it because it, it wasn't like the novel materialized itself as a whole thing. It was coming to me in pieces. And, um, it was my professors, Wilton first, maybe I think it was Wilton that's the first one that suggested it. And then Kessel, um, suggested that this might be a novel and that I should start thinking about it in that way. And um, I started um, being a little bit more intentional about what the larger story was I was trying to tell. So how many different pieces had you written in this world that you were thinking of as, as separate stories? I think, I think about by the time the MFA was over, I had written seven pieces and maybe about halfway through that, so maybe around like um the fort piece, I started thinking about it as a longer thing. So it took a while for me to get to the place where I was like, maybe this is a book because um novels give me a bit of anxiety. I had tried doing it before and failed. And so I was like, okay, these are just small things. And then it just, it came to the point where I was doing it enough and I kept re returning to the place enough that I was like, well, maybe I'm not being honest with myself. Maybe this is something bigger. And so you started publishing short stories, right? Before the novel? Yeah, I published. So a third of the stars of heaven was actually one of the, one of my early short stories. Well, I, I published it as a short story. Um, but before that I published, uh, um, loneliness is in your blood, um, and other worlds in this one, um, which was a novelette in Asimov's loneliness is in your blood was, um, like a, like a shorter piece about a Caribbean vampire. And so I, I kind of got my start at least trying to publish things in the, um, the spec markets. Did you uh, start selling stuff pretty quickly or did you have a lot of rejections before you started selling stuff? S Sporadically, when I was in the MFA, I tried sending things out and I got a few, a few rejections, but I wasn't really, 
I would, I would send something out and then I would get in a rejection and then it would sit there. And so I didn't really start seriously submitting things until after the MFA and after Clarion. And that's when I started like sending things and then getting rejections and then sending them out again. And so I got a few rejections then, but, um, loneliness is in your blood, which was the first thing that ended up getting published. I sent to, to nightmare and that got accepted right away. But that wasn't the case with all my stories. Well, and that ended up in Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy, right? Is that one? Yeah, 2018. So that's pretty cool that your first published story got into Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy. I was really surprised. <laughs> <laughs> and then, so what was Clarion like? Did you, uh, do you have any um, memories that stand out from Clarion? Yeah, I just remember feeling very ill-prepared. There was a lot of people. Um, so it's like 18 people in a house and all of them were talking about places they, so they had submitted to and, um, and publications they had. And I was like, Oh, I, I barely sent anything out. Um, I felt, I felt like it was kind of a, a strange feeling, but I think good because I was like, Oh, these are people that I could learn from. Um, cause I, I clearly didn't know what I was doing. And so it was really, I was, I say it would really pleasant in that way that I had a lot of peers that I love their work. They seem to like mine. And, um, I learned a lot about the, the business of, um, being a writer, like sending things out, getting rejections, keeping track, that kind of thing. Um, and also just getting to read other people that was interested in, in weird stuff and feeling encouraged to write weirder. Because um the MFA, I sometimes felt like I had to, I had to do a little bit more work to convince people that I should be there. Because I always I was writing science fiction fantasy, and not everyone was writing or reading that. And so it was um it was just refreshing to be in a room of all science fiction fantasy horror people. Absolutely. Were any of the uh, instructors people that you had wanted to meet or uh, work with? Uh, N.K. Jameson. I had read um a couple books of her inheritance um series and I I had read the first book of the fifth season. I think that was the the only one that was out then. And loved it so much and um was a huge fan and kinda wigged out when I when she came in and um had like a really um really embarrassing fanboy moment. But it was um you know it it was really it was really cool to be able to sit in the same room and hear her discuss my work and other people's work and um encourage us to do more of it um that was um a really like cool moment your your fanboy moment was you were just really excited or you were gushing or like <laughs> me and another um um clarion um west um team arsenic member was in the basement when she, when she showed up, um, there was a place where we would all hang out. There was couches and a TV down there. And, um, somehow we managed to be the only two down there when she came in the front door. And so we heard her and we heard, um, I think the director at the time talking with her. And I remember freaking out because I hadn't gotten a haircut in a really long time. And so. <laughs> <laughs> It's so embarrassing. And so we were both just down there talking about um how nervous we were to meet her at the first time and not having our hair done. 
It was me and another guy. Um, so, so that's what, that was the embarrassing moment. She didn't see it, but now I'm talking about it. So, um, yeah. So you mentioned Team Arsenic. What is that? That's just what we call ourselves. Um, um, Clarion West 2016. It was the, um, the 33rd year. The chemical symbol is arsenic for that, for that. That's a chemical number. And we, um, we call ourselves Team Arsenic. We have tattoos. We were we were a very close knit um, bunch of people. By the end of it, how many people got tattoos? More than half. I think about two thirds of us, somewhere around twelve or thirteen. Yeah. So then, okay. So then, also, you say in the acknowledgments that um, special thanks to Martha Millard for choosing to represent me when I only had a couple stories and a half completed manuscript to my name. So tell us about that. How did you meet? This is your agent. How did you meet her? And like, how did that come all come about? Loneliness is in your blood. Um, she she emailed me. She said she emailed me saying that she liked the story, and she asked me if I had anything else. And I gave her. Um, at that time, I only had another short story published, um, the novelette that was in Asimov's, and I recommended that, and I sent her um, a copy of it, and. She liked that enough to ask me if I had any, like, long work done. And I, at that time, I still hadn't finished the lesson. It was, like, maybe um, two-thirds finished. And so I sent her what I had. And she seemed to like that enough to um, ask to represent me. Well, that's cool. And so then how long did it take to sell the book? Well... Once I sent that in the, the the piece of it that I had, and she she said that there was promise there. She asked me when I would have it done, and I gave her a very ambitious estimate. I told her maybe like six months, and I would I managed to get it done. Maybe it took me an extra month, and then we um we did a round of revisions, just me and her. And then she sent it out to a few places and, um, almost immediately Blackstone, um, responded that they wanted to publish it. So maybe, maybe like nine months before I got the good news that someone might want to do something with it. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. And so why don't, we, why don't you say a little bit more about the premise? Uh, you mentioned you had this dream of aliens and everything, but but talk about just like more about more details about the setup for the novel. Right. Um, so it's it's set, you know, pretty much in our present day um, with some with a large part of it five years in the future. And it's about an alien race called the Ina that have come to Earth they're doing research of some kind and they have made an exchange. They're going to give us um, some, some things that we need, some technology, some cures for some diseases in exchange for doing research in the U S Virgin Islands. Um, they're very cagey about what that research is, but um, the, the governments of the world are pretty much um, on board as long as nothing pretty much don't attack us, do what you want. Thank you. And um, so the story takes place in the Virgin Islands, exploring the relationship between these newly arrived Ina and some families in the Virgin Islands and the larger community and how the, the culture clashes that result from 
their arrival. And the Ina, you know, they have sort of tentacles on their heads and sharp teeth and all these things, but they're somehow they're able to kind of pass for human when they are interacting with the the local people. Yeah, there's um. So the Ina can manipulate their appearance, and so when the Ina are in when they're interacting in the world um, of the humans, they they tend to appear as human. Um, and when they're, you know, amongst themselves, they can appear in their natural form, which is kind of like, I picture it as a, um, a cross between, um, uh, octopus, a shark, and, um, and a mollusk. I mean, I don't know if you saw Paul DiFilippo's, uh, review of the book, but he was pointing out that these sorts of stories where, um, aliens are, are basically sort of integrated with humans or living among them in the more or less the present are, are actually fairly unusual. He lists a couple examples like the TV show Alien Nation. Right. But, um, but there, there aren't really that many. Was that something like when you were writing this, did you think like this is, um, you know, this has not been done that much or were there other examples that you were, um, fond of or anything? I think maybe V. Um, I had watched the, the um the remake of V um it's the one where there's like these lizard aliens and they're wearing human skin, but um reading Paul de Filippo's um review was really informative to me. I hadn't the examples that he had listed was things that I had not heard of, and it was like oh wow this is um it it actually was comforting to see that there's a history of that kind of fiction, and that I was um I wasn't writing something. And I didn't think of it as entirely new. I just thought of it as a, a thing that um came to me and it fit it made sense to me. But um it was cool to see that oh there's there's other writers that had played with this kind of fiction before. And the alien spaceship kind of looks like a giant seashell. Do you remember how that idea came to you? I think I think it came to me um thinking about the technology that the 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 Ina use. So they use um this kind of um smart cell technology that builds that it manages their physiology within their bodies, but they also they can use it to build mega structures, they use it to build cities, they use it to build ships. And it seemed to me like the 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 closest analog was um seashells. And so I thought well, wouldn't it be cool if the ship kind of took on that image as well? Yeah, no, I think that's really cool. I mean, and you must have seen a lot of, I assume you saw a lot of seashells growing up. Did you ever think they looked sort of alien? Yeah, yeah. And, um, conch shells, um, which are, which are larger and, and stranger looking. And when you put your ear to them, you can kind of hear the ocean. Um, I always thought that was really cool. And so when I was looking for something, when I was trying to imagine what the Enas would look like and how they would work and their technology, it seemed to me that this would be a, a really cool thing to play with. And since they came from an ocean planet, it seemed to me that there might be some kind of um, um, common um, physiology, common evolution of, of, um, of alien life on their planet. So also the book delves quite a bit into the history of the U.S. Virgin Islands. Could you just talk about what sort of historical research did you do for the book? So I read, I read, um, a Virgin Islands history book 
which was, um, I think it was published in the 1970s. And looking at it, looking on my shelf for it, but it was, it, it kind of went from the Danish settlement of the island all the way up to the American, um, acquisition of the Virgin Islands. And then I read, um, for the scenes that took place during the, the slave revolt, I read a, um, a fictional retelling of it by a historian called The Night of the Silent Drums. And I also read a couple, um, travelogues of the island, St. John, and some, some, um, document collections of the time. Um, there was a couple books that were published that was just articles, letters, um, newspaper clippings of that period of time. And I used that to help me fill in some of the gaps. So then when you were doing the research, reading those books, was the, the history that you were discovering, was it pretty much what you expected or what you were taught in school? Or were there things that surprised you that you were discovering? A lot of it was surprising to me. Um, I mean, we had a Caribbean history class growing up, you know, the, 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 um, the teachers were trying to, to give us some idea of our history, but we also took a lot of American and European history. So a lot of that stuff stood out more to me when I was a kid. Um, I kind of glossed over a lot of the Caribbean bits. And so it was really cool to actually get to, to read specifically about the Virgin Islands, specifically about, um, St. Thomas and St. John and St. Croix and figure out and learn things about our history that I hadn't, that I either didn't learn in class or I wasn't paying attention to. Um, there was, um, <laughs> some really great stuff about pirate history and there was, um, some references to piracy, all of the, the different colonial powers robbing each other's stuff, which was really fun. Um, uh, there was a lot of stuff about um, slave society in the Virgin Islands, which was things I didn't know. Um, a lot of the book, one of the books I was reading um, actually gave you like counts of how many slaves were on island versus how many whites. And it was like disproportionate how um, blacks to whites. It was um, maybe, I would say maybe like um, like 300 blacks to every one white person on the island. At, at any given time. And then they would also break down the, um, the black population between enslaved and free. And it was a significant amount of free slave, um, free black people, which was really interesting. Um, just, you know, a lot of really cool stuff. The, the different plantations that were on the different islands, the, um, the, the stuff that led up to the, um, the emancipation. Um, in the, in the, um, the Virgin Islands, cause there was, um, a pretty popular revolt that happened on St. Croix. And I got to read a little bit more about that. I had known some of it, but not all of it. Um, yeah, it was, you know, it's, it was just like a really cool opportunity to just move through the history and see the things that I had thought I knew, but get to know them in more detail. Well, you know, I, I heard you say in an interview that when you came to the to the U.S. that, you know, you would tell people you were from the U.S. Virgin Islands and pe a lot of people just wouldn't know even where those were. And I'll confess, I, I don't know a great deal about them. Um, in the book, it describes the relationship as between the American government and the U.S. Virgin Islands as being, quote, absentee landlordism. Um, could you say a little bit more about what is what is that? What does that mean? Right. Um 
So when I when I first went to Pittsburgh for my undergrad, I would talk to people about the Virgin Islands and a lot of people um just had no idea that we were territories of the US. And so I would say Puerto Rico, I was like, we're really close to Puerto Rico, and they kinda had an idea of what where that was and what that was, maybe. And so that would get them to situate me in relation to that. I would say I'm like 15 minutes plane ride from Puerto Rico. And then they'd be like, oh, okay. And I would be like, I'm, I'm like maybe two hours, um, south of Florida. And they were like, oh, okay. Um, and so in the culture itself, there's a, there's just a general, um, dismissiveness of the territories and the Virgin Islands because it's so small. The population isn't, is a couple hundred thousand people. Um, it, it, it's easily overlooked. And the U.S. government doesn't really talk about it in any meaningful way either. There hasn't been a significant conversation about um, statehood or independence. Um, when things happen in the Virgin Islands, um, recently there was um, a pretty terrible hurricane in 2017. Um, there wasn't a lot of news about the Virgin Islands. There was a lot of news about um, the hurricane making landfall in Florida. This is Hurricane Irma. Um, but all of that time, um, people were, at least people on my Facebook were trying to figure out if their family members were okay. There was no news coverage of what was going on in the U.S. Virgin Islands. And so it was like a lot of news coverage talked about if Irma made landfall in Florida, it would be hitting the U.S. And it was like, well, where the U.S.? It already hit us and we weren't hearing anything. And so there's just this kind of, general cultural um, lack of knowledge about the, the territories, but there's also the way even the government thinks about the territories. It's, it's, it's an afterthought, if that much. Um, the way that policy is designed around it, the, the way that aid is thought about when, when um, thinking about the um, um, relief efforts in the Virgin Islands, it's kind of... Um, it's kind of something that's like, oh, we can we can help them out if we want to, um, especially with this administration. But this has always been true. Um, it's just this kind of feeling of being invisible or being absent from the larger conversation of Americanness. I mean, do you have a feeling about whether the U.S. Virgin Islands should be independent or should be a state or should just be getting more attention or? I don't know. Um, my, hmm, I've thought about it quite a lot and I, I haven't decided whether independence or statehood. I know that I don't like the fact that we're a territory, but there's people that may disagree with me. There's, um, there's a lot of conversation about, there's a, there's a little bit of a freedom that comes from being Associated with the, um, the United States, but not a state. There's a, there's a kind of opportunity there to kind of, um, determine some level of destiny. But I, I don't know if that is enough to justify the current status. I think that it, um, there's ways that being a state or being independent would benefit the Virgin Islands. I read, you know, you wrote this article that was in Nightmare Magazine where you were saying that um, you were sort of talking about your experience of watching Buffy the Vampire Slayer and how um, 
you know, how strange it is that it's not a big deal that this town in California is infested with demons and everything. But saying that that kind of made sense to you growing up in the islands because you kind of felt like you were off people's radar. Could you talk about that? Yeah, I think I wrote in the the article that if there were demons in the Virgin Islands, no one would notice. It, was, it would be kind of the same <laughs> deal as in um, Sunnydale, where there's um, there's a hell mouth and it just doesn't seem to pick up national attention. I feel like if if that was happening in the Virgin Islands, it would be similar. So I kind of related to that, that kind of feeling of being isolated. Um, and I think it was one of the things that um, I kind of put into the lesson, this idea that a lot of things are happening on the islands and no one really seems to care because it's not really um, important, at least to people in the mainland or in the, on the world stage, but it is important to the people that live there. Well, you were making the point too, that how plausible is it that this um, Sunnydale, this sort of upper middle class suburb mm -hmm. doesn't attract attention, you know, that, that really the people who get ignored aren't upper middle class suburbs, you know? Right. It seemed more likely that it would be someplace like the Virgin Islands, someplace like, um, some some isolated black community somewhere. Um, but I was a kid. I wasn't. I did not have a lot of race theory then. <laughs> so I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Uh, they're kind of they're isolated. That makes sense. That's how I felt. I mean, in one of the interviews I watched with you, you were saying that in your MFA program, you say, "quote uh, I could see this impulse to move away from politics um, in the work that people were writing." Could you talk about that? I think that. Literature generally, or at least, um, I think it's true also in genre, but it's especially true in literary fiction. There's this kind of impulse to, to, um, write about individuals and the, the struggles of individuals, psychology maybe, or, um, or, or internal conflicts or relational conflicts, but not necessarily how people um, engage with the larger world. What are the conflicts that are brought on by society? And it's one of the things that I felt attracted to in science fiction um, and fantasy that there was just, there was just, that was more of a conversation. And it, it was something that I constantly wanted to um, write about in my fiction. Um, and I could see sometimes when I wrote about it, that there was um, a level of resistance. This is this this because people disagreed with your politics, or it's like they had this feeling that it wasn't artistic to write about politics, or I think is generally the the understanding is that it's um politics isn't very art artistic. There's um you write about people, you don't write about the politics of the world, but it seems to me that it's impossible to write about people without the political. And so it wasn't I wouldn't say I necessarily was trying to consciously bring politics into my stories, but it just came into my stories because that is how I engage with the world. Um, that was what I was interested in. Um, if I'm writing about the Virgin Islands, I am going to talk about the fact that, you know, um, I would, I'm going to talk about the relationship between the Virgin Islands and the United States. That's a political conversation. Um, but it's a part of the lived experience of Virgin Islanders. Well, certainly a lot of those books you mentioned as being your favorites, like 1984, The Dispossessed, 
um, Green Mars have a lot to do with politics. Yeah, very political. Um, and I, I, I found, um, I, 1984 was one of the, I think it was 1984 and Brave New World. I think I read those two books at the same time in 1984, Brave New World as well, but 1984 stuck out to me, um, because it was so deeply engaged with political things. I didn't know at the time that that was something that I wanted, but, um, when I read it, I was deeply moved by it. Um, in a way that I wasn't for other books that I was reading at the time. Mm -hmm. Could you talk about some of the ways in which you've written about politics? I mean, you mentioned that in the lesson, it has to do with, you know, the relationship between the, the U.S. Virgin Islands and the American government and so on. But then you also, like you wrote a piece that appeared in, or a couple of pieces actually, that appeared in Grassroots Economic Organizing. And you had a story called When the Rains Come Back that involves the concept of panarchy. Could you talk about some of those things? When I was in my MFA, I, as I was writing about, um, what, as I was writing pieces of this, this, um, what became the lesson, I was also really interested and engaged with ideas of, um, economic justice, just as a means of answering some of the racial justice questions that I had, um, seeing communities that were impoverished, trying to figure out ways that those communities could have more agency over their lives and their, the, um, their community. And it seemed to me, um, that thinking about ways that a community could gain capital for themselves and build infrastructure on their own, not asking for permission, not, um, begging for a loan, but working together, finding some kind of enterprise and then pooling that, re those resources back into the community to build the wealth of the community. Um, that was something I was just thinking a lot about. And at the time, I didn't know that there was a, um, there was a, a movement or a history to that, um, solidarity economics. And so it was just something that as time went on and I did more reading and I, um, I think at some point I was trying to write a science fiction story that imagined a future, um, um, public housing community building wealth for themselves. And then I stumbled across cooperatives and that kind of stuff. And so I was just through that research, through um, just being really interested in that as a, as a way of imagining better futures for marginalized people. I got excited about alternate systems of governance, alternate systems of um, um, economics. So it was, it just, it seemed to, um, I think really materialize out of my interest in science fiction and also my interest in social justice. Well, you said that there's this larger community involving these things like solidarity. Are, are there, um, do you go to meetings or are there online communities or, um, websites or how do you follow that or how are you involved with that? Um, so you mentioned grassroots economic organizing. That is a, um, a collective of academics, um, um, scholars. Um, activists, people within the movement of cooperatives. So people that live in cooperative housing, people that do, um, have worker owned, um, businesses. So, um, businesses owned by the workers and, um, governed by the workers. And so members, um, the members are made up of people that have those interests or those backgrounds. And so I've been part of it for a couple years and, um, I attend meetings. Um, I, I, 
I try to do work when I have time. Um, I go to retreats, that kind of stuff. Just, just, you know, being in the same room with people that are interested in that stuff. Um, I read a lot about, um, examples in the, in the United States. There's, um, several thousand worker co-ops in the United States. And so I try to, um, learn about them. Um, I, it has kind of, um, slowly trickled into my fiction, that sort of thing. How about this, uh, this concept of panarchy? Could you talk about that? I really don't know how, when or how I stumbled across it, but it was, um, I knew I was thinking a lot about the idea that governance could be chosen. So like being, um, being a part of a government that is not, um, restricted by place, but is, um, is a part of a group dynamic. It's a, it's a form of community. And so, um, I was, I, I was re- reading something online about, um, this kind of laissez-faire, um, governance where you, you take the ideas of, it's the, how it started was, um, taking ideas of capitalism, the, the ability to be able to choose your, um, your own, I don't know, cell phone provider and, taking that idea and moving it to governance. Wouldn't it be cool if you could um, pay dues to a government of your choos- choosing and that you could form um, a contract with that government and that other people could do that and that that was something that um, could be um, could be a could be a form of governing your life. You could have you can have someone um come up with the rules for that particular group and based on your satisfaction you would you would continue to be a part of that group or you could do and there was um I started reading other articles about the ability to have one and then also join another one to do other things that you might want to do and that kind of thing there was a lot of um theory around panarchy and polyarchy um, that was, um, I think, um, collected on a website called pinarchy.org or something. And I don't know how I found it, but I, I found it and I started reading articles on it. And I think when I, I got attracted to the idea, but I also saw how it could be exploited in the same ways, um, that capitalism can be exploited. So I was interested in exploring what are the good things about this idea and what are the things that would be some problems that would come out of it. And so I imagined a world where there are anarchist um, communities and they govern themselves, um, but they, they're next to um, socialist governments and um, more democratic capitalist governments and that there's all of these um, different ways they interact and work together, but they're not, none of them are denying each other's existence. They're just kind of um, competing for the, um, the affection of the people. Yeah, it seems like a really interesting idea idea to me. Do you have any sense of like how some of this stuff would work in practice? I mean, sort of the idea, I guess, is that you know each person just sort of um, fills out a checklist or something, right? They're like, I want to live under the communist government, I want to live under the capitalist government, the monarchist government, the anarchist government, etc. And then they're governed by the, that set of rules. But like, how does that work in terms of like if there's I don't know if there's a pothole on the street or something, and the different houses on the street or have pledged allegiance to different governments or like, is the police like, say like, is the policing difference? Like say, you know, 
like drugs are legalized in the libertarian for the libertarian people, but not for the uh, for one of the other ones. Do the police know who to arrest and who not? Like, right? Has there been been discussion of that sort of that sort of um, granular kind of stuff? There's a there's a bit of discussion um, of the of how it would look on a ground level, and I didn't I didn't really get in when the rains come back. I didn't really get into um, all of those specifics. I I have some ideas of how that would work. I think it's kind of like volunteered restriction. So if you if you think drugs are bad, then you would probably choose a government that um restricts drug use. And then if you got caught, which is kind of crazy, but if you got caught using the drugs that you thought were bad, then you would be punished under the rules of that government. Um but the way that I wrote about it in the in the um the story that I wrote was that there was kind of rules and bylaws that are that were a part of each government that you would kind of sign on to depending on what you were interested in but then there was also like a kind of um like um a general assembly of governments where they would decide on the rules that governed everyone so it's like you just you couldn't go over to the um the anarchist side of the community and kill someone and say that it's that's legal there um it was pretty much agreed upon by everyone that certain types of crime um would be punishable by um agreed upon um penalties and so a bit of agreed upon rules and restrictions for the community and laws and then also within different governments, and they kind of coexist in the same space, other um, agreements about how to live life and um, what what would happen if you um, had conflicts with your neighbors, that kind of thing. Yeah, so there needs to be, a, I guess, a lot of interfacing between the different governments that they wouldn't be all just separate. Yeah, it's, it's not, um, at least the panarchy that I imagine wasn't very... Um, isolationists they were having conversations about what how could they live together peacefully and then there was um a kind of um united nations where they would talk about abuses so making sure that the um the 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 capitalist governments for example didn't try to buy out the land of um some some anarchist government um and so there were, and you know ways of how how to how to deal with that if it was to happen and that kind of thing. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. I also want to ask you. So in, in the lesson, there's a scene where one of the characters is at the beach and notes that seaweed is kind of taking over the beach, and they said that this never happens before, and maybe it's global warming. I was just curious if you had um like personally seen any any effects of global warming from your time in the in the U.S. Virgin Islands. Um. So. Uh, the thing that I can t- um, talk about most directly is um, hurricanes. So it's not that they're more frequent; they're just um, stronger. And there's um, it's just a general sense of fear among people um, back home in the Caribbean, generally about what the future is going to look like with the with the um, with global warming and the um, the strengthening of hurricanes. Um, there's also um, some level of, um, damage to coral reefs due to, to global warming. They're dying. Um, and so there's some of that. And, um, I, that particular scene came out of me going back to one of my favorite beaches and finding a lot of seaweed there. 
and wondering why that was happening. Um, and so I just had one of my characters wonder the same thing. I have no idea if it's related. It's just something that I noticed and I was like, oh, that's strange that there was never seaweed here before. Do you know Tobias Bacall? Yeah. Um, we've met a couple times. Um, he was in the um, Best American, um, the same year I was. Um, really cool guy. Grew up in the Virgin Islands. Yeah, no, he he's an old friend of mine. We actually went to Clarion together back in 1999. Oh, dope. Um, but you know, he he grew up on a boat in the Caribbean, and he was telling me, you know, after one of the big, I think it was Hurricane Andrew, but when after after one of the big hurricanes came through, that you know you just couldn't live on a boat, um, where he had in the area where he had been anymore because you couldn't get insurance anymore because the hurricanes had gotten bad enough that, uh, you know, nobody was willing to sell you insurance, and it just sort of you know, wiped out this whole way of life that people had been living for, you know, for hundreds of years, I guess. Yeah. Um, I, I did not know about that, but there's, um, that doesn't surprise me. There's also this, um, we talked a little bit, me and Tobias about disaster capitalism, like the, the idea of people buying up, um, damaged property that people have abandoned because of hurricanes and that's happening that's always been true, but it's happening more and more because the hurricanes have been increasingly, um, um, you know, more devastating. And so there's been, you know, people come and they buy up, um, things on the cheap and then they rebuild them. And it's one of the ways that, um, it's one of the conversations that people are having in terms of like, um, local control versus, um, outside control. I think some people have also called it, um, climate gentrification. So the idea of <laughs> that, um, wealthy people will have an advantage in places like this, um, that are experiencing, um, the, the most damage from climate change that they'll, they'll be able to buy and use this property and abandon this property. But, you know, for the people that live in those places, it's, um, it'll be devastating for them. And, you know, it means losing their jobs, um, losing generational, um, homes. Um, you know, a lot of, um, a lot of people that live in the Virgin Islands live in homes that their, their parents or their parents' parents built. And when a hurricane comes and it, it destroys, um, that property, it's not just destroying a home, it's destroying, you know, generations of legacy. And so, it's one of those things that people are extremely worried about. I was also, I'm just curious. So um, there are a couple of lines in the book that sort of suggest that maybe science fiction is unhealthy in a way. So there's a part where it says, Derek had trouble with things right in front of him. They never seemed big enough, grand enough. And then another part where a character thinks uh, she could never fill that desire Derek had taught himself to have that those books had infected him with. And I was just curious if you think... Um, if there's any downside to reading too much science fiction. That's interesting. <laughs> um, when I wrote those lines, I didn't, I wasn't thinking about it as, um, a critique of science fiction as a whole. I, I was thinking about it more as a, um, a personal Derek thing, but I can see, I guess I can see the argument that, um, for some people, if they read science fiction, it might prevent them from, um, that certain form of escapism by preventing them from being interested in things that are, um, are down to earth that are happening in the moment. The, the kinds of things that, um, 
aren't really that interesting, but are important. Um, minutia is the kind of stuff that you don't read about in stories. I remember having a conversation with, um, some people, some friends on Facebook about the idea of writing civic fiction. And most people responded with, that sounds really boring. Um, and so, and so I imagine like if you, you know, I read a lot of different types of science fiction. I think that science fiction is, is deeply thoughtful. Um, and it, it engages with, um, really important questions. Um, it, it's critical of the world and it's, um, I don't think that it's, it's too, um, too pie in the sky or it's too, um, distracting from the real world, but I could see if you're reading only one kind of science fiction that that could be the case. I don't know. Um, I don't think that's how I have been affected by it, but it's possible. Yeah, well, it's interesting. I mean, because you talk about, I mean, the, the the kind of science fiction that you're writing and reading and that we're talking about all has to do with all these very serious real world issues. So on the one hand, it's not escapist at all. But on the other hand, I, I do spend a lot of time reading all this stuff and then not necessarily balancing my checkbook or whatever, you know, so it's like, there is some level of which, you know, thinking about the big picture of things, you know, can sort of take you away from what you need to be doing right now, you know, at your desk right now, you know? Yeah, there's some ways that a good science fiction um, book or movie or TV show, it can be escapist. I, I can see, I see it in my, my own life, ways that I would much rather watch a really good um, science fiction thing, thinking about the world than actually engaging actively in the world. Um, I try to balance that, but it, I... I feel like it's um, it's very attractive. I mean, the the real world. I feel like the stakes are both low and high. Like in a book, you can kind of solve a problem with a few sentences, um, but in in the real world, that 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 those um ten years later is actually real years, and you have to actually spend the time, um, doing the work that that um, that you can just jump. You can in a book you can just make a page break and you're there. It's it's real and um there's a lot of little decisions there. And then there's also a lot of ways that you can just mess it up completely. And um there's no do over, there's no edit. And so I can see how it's attractive to read about it and talk about it, but not actually do the things. I think that's why I've been attracted to writing um Fiction that's kind of problem solving and looking at things in the immediate future, like using, trying to extrapolate a world where there's a bit more, um, um, economic democracy, which is just basically workers that own their, their work and that, um, that, um, govern their businesses together collectively, that kind of thing. So imagining that, I feel like it's plausible and I think you could do that. Um, Figuring out how to fix global warming, I think it's a, is a larger problem, but I think that you can get there by writing the kind of fiction that's a little bit closer to the present that shows the steps. I feel like I've been excited lately about that kind of fiction. All right, cool. So we're pretty much out of time. So do you have any, just any final thoughts or any other projects you want to mention? Um, I am currently working. I'm, I'm pretty close. Um, I'm trying not to jinx it. I'm pretty close to wrapping up, hmm. um, 
um, uh, my second book, No Gods, No Monsters. It's a um, contemporary fantasy. It's about, it's kind of, I, I would pitch it as like a, um, a very political Buffy the Vampire Slayer. There's a lot of monsters and they're advocating for, um, their rights and coexistence among humans, but there's a lot of reasons why that's messy. And so it's, um, it's a book about that and I'm hoping that it will be a series. We'll see. And the, the title is a play on No Gods, No Masters, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. If people don't know, it's sort of an old political slogan. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. And it kind of, you know, you know, there's a lot of people. So, like, there's the there's the monster stuff, but there's also a lot of, like, um, solidarity, economic stuff, and um, consensus politics and that kind of stuff, too. I'm trying to, like... um have both conversations at the same time, have something sexy and interesting and um, fun, but also mix that with some, some vegetables, so to speak. Um, people, <laughs> people having long meetings and deciding about um, how to govern their, their bookstore and that kind of thing. Yeah, that all sounds great. And so I think we're going to wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Cadwell Turnbull about his new novel, The Lesson. So Cadwell, thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Cadwell Turnbull for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoyed the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.